0: Now let's open our Bibles to the book of Philippians, the second chapter, Philippians chapter 2. And we will read together the first 11 verses. Now let me explain that we're committed to expository preaching in Covenant Presbyterian Church, which means the authority is in the text that is in front of you, and we expound the text And so you really need your Bibles open. Love to hear those pages flip in this congregation. Uh, You really need your Bibles open because we are constantly referencing the text before us. Let's pray. Our Father, as we open Your Word and the Word is expounded, we pray that the Holy Spirit, who has given this text and all of Your Word by divine inspiration will now illumine our minds and hearts that we may see and understand and that we may see Christ in this text. That our hearts may be humbled to bow before Him and that you will use this season of the year to deepen our walk with Christ but also that those who do not know you will come to know Jesus Christ the Lord. In whose name we pray. Amen. Philippians 2 beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And here we have another majestic text from the Apostle Paul about the Savior Jesus Christ. A twin peak to the text that we looked at last week from the book of Colossians. The core of Paul's doctrine of Christ is here and he writes about the humiliation of Christ for the very practical reason of encouraging believers to love one another and to show humility toward one another. The whole point is that if Christ condescends to save us then surely we must walk humbly together one with another in the body of Christ. Now this morning we're going to focus on the doctrine of Christ that is found here in this text. Christ looked to the interests of others and we have a magnificent summary of Christmas. Indeed also of the cross and of Easter in the passage before us. The first thing we see as we come to this text is the Son's pre-incarnate Glory. Now remember children, incarnation means to take on human nature, fleshment. So pre-incarnate means before He became man, pre-incarnate. So the Son's pre-incarnate glory. And we see that here in verse 6. Uh, when we are told who though He was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now the word form you will notice in verse 6 is coordinated with the expression equality with God. Form in verse 6 is also used in verse 7. Look at it. But being himself, making himself nothing taking the form of a servant. Form in verse 7 means to take the essence of a servant. And so what does form mean in verse 6? Well it means the essence of... Someone has said it means reality in manifestation. It means that he possesses God's being, that he is himself God. And indeed that word being is in the Greek text. Who being in the form of God. Being is right there in the text and it speaks of the Son's abiding nature. This is who he has always been, is, and always will be. So to sum up what the Apostle Paul is saying in this verse, who being God in His very nature, Jesus, of Jesus we cannot say that He is simply um, uh, carrying a spark of divinity, that He was just the fairest flower of humanity. Of Jesus we must say the essential attributes of God's very nature have always been His and always will be His. So the Apostle is stressing the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And here is the Son's relation to the Father. The Son did not need to grasp after equality with God because He always is and has been God. It is His by nature. John Murray says, deity was his inalienable possession. So what depth we find in these words already in verse 6. If you stop and think about it, this is staggering. And I wonder if you've read Philippians 2 so often in your devotions that you fail to see the magnificence of what is right before our eyes. The stress is on humiliation in the text, but the stress is on humiliation in light of his full deity, in light of the fact that it is God who came down, in light of who He is, the dignity of His person is what makes the humiliation so very deep. We have then an infinite condescension. God Himself came down. And so already in verse 6, we have expressed to us by divine revelation that Jesus Christ is 100% God. God. He is God, the second person of the Trinity. But then we move on, and in this text we secondly see the Son's humiliation. Having seen His deity, we now see His humiliation. So read again with me verses 7 and 8. But made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In verse 7, we are told then that this one who has always been equal with God because he shares his nature, that is his being, his attributes, because he is God, this God became man. The condescension is so great that Paul describes it as he made himself nothing. God came down, God came down, God came down, 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 down. The condescension is an infinite condescension. And the Son son made Himself nothing. But notice that the text is very explicit that He made Himself nothing by taking, by addition, not by subtraction. He did not cease to be God, but He became what he had not before been by addition by taking it says the form of a servant the very essence of a servant now when the apostle Paul uses the word servant here in this context there can be no doubt that he has in mind the suffering servant of Jehovah as is found in Isaiah 53 Surely he took our sins and carried our sorrows. His servanthood is a servanthood that leads, as we shall see, to the cross. Uh, already he's emphasizing that condescension. And so the Son did not give up divine attributes, but he gave up glory. As J.B. Lightfoot put it, he gave up the insignia of his majesty, but he continues in very nature God. The master of all became the servant of all, the creator became a creature. And in verse 7 being born in the likeness of man, what does that mean? It means that he assumed human nature in order that he might save us fallen sinners. He assumes human nature though without sin. And he accepted all the conditions involved with the incarnation. Is there hunger in the world, he hungered. Is there thirst, he thirsted. He thirsted. Is there deprivation, He was deprived, ignominy, the hatred of sinners, he bore it all. But especially this, he bore the cross for me and you, believer. And so we read in verse 8 he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. By which the Apostle Paul, of course, as we study his whole theology, would have us to know that he took voluntarily the lowest possible position by dying a criminal's death on a Roman cross and bearing the curse that our sin deserved in the presence of God's law and holiness and paid the penalty of our sins when he shed the blood of his body on the tree. He suffered beyond comprehension, because this is God who became man, who suffered on the cross. Yes, it is true, his infinite nature gave to his finite sufferings infinite value, but this is the Son of God, holy, sinless, undefiled, who went to the cross. And his soul grew sorrowful as he moved toward the cross, we read in the Gospel narratives. He who was rich for our sakes became poor that we through his poverty might become rich. How poor did the Son of God, how poor did he have to come, become. He became so poor that he went to a cross and bore our sins and took the wrath of God in our place that we might have the riches of justification and of sanctification and of eternal life. And then we ask ourselves, why? Why? Why did he do this? Why did the Father send him? Why did the Son come? And the only answer that we can give is love. People, love. He went to the cross because he loves you. He shed his blood because... He loves you. He gave up eternal glory because he loves you. The Father sent his Son. The Son humbled himself and went to the cross because he loved us. Do you know that, people of God? Do you know that you are loved? Loved. Loved with an infinite, eternal, and unchangeable love that has been demonstrated in the cross of Jesus Christ when Jesus removed the wrath of God for us. And this is why the baby was born in Bethlehem of Judea so long ago. And that is why this baby grew up and obeyed the law that we broke and went to a cross and shed his blood because he loved us. Now you need the cross. Do not think that this is some dispensable portion of the text this morning when he tells us that he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, obeying his Father's will, coming and going to the cross. You need the cross. The cross is indispensable and must be emphasized when we think of this baby born in Bethlehem long ago. Why do you need the cross? You need the cross because our own works cannot atone for our sins. You need the cross because the penalty must be paid. You need the cross because the shed blood of Jesus is the only way the debt could be paid. You need the cross because the only way your guilt can be removed and your conscience cleansed is in the shed blood of Jesus on the cross. You cannot know God. You cannot fellowship with God. You cannot have access to God. You cannot be accepted by God. You cannot have your guilt removed. You cannot have a clean conscience except through the cross of Jesus Christ. Martin Luther found this out. We sang one of his hymns just a while ago, but he says this When I was a monk, I made a great effort to live according to the requirements of the monastic rule. Nevertheless, my conscience could never achieve certainty, but was always in doubt and said, you have not done this correctly. You were not contrite enough. You omitted this in your confession. Therefore, the longer I tried to heal my uncertain, weak, and troubled conscience with human traditions, the more uncertain, weak, and troubled I continually made it. And what Luther discovered is this, that only through the cross could he be accepted by God. We sang it, didn't we? Nails, spear shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. And so the Apostle Paul tells us that he is the Son, equal with the Father, sharing his very attributes, 100% God. The Apostle tells us that he is the Son of God, who came into this world and assumed human nature, and he was 100% man. 100% God. 100% man. That's divine math. That can't be explained on a blackboard. But then thirdly, we see in this text, the Son's transcendent exaltation in verses 9 through 11, and I'd like for you to read these verses with me again. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. His transcendent exaltation. So the Apostle is saying that he who has always been eternally Jehovah, the second person of the Trinity, who humbled himself and assumed human nature, now as the mediator, as God man is exalted. And included in verses 9 through 11 are the resurrection, the ascension, and the return of Christ. All of this is included in verses 9 through 11. And in that exaltation, he who was eternal God, now God-man, is given a name as our mediator. That is, what was true of him with the glory that he had with the Father before the world was, is now acknowledged of him, and he has returned to that glory. And the name of Jesus, listen to this, the name of Jesus means the name that Jesus bears. And the name of Jesus, the name that Jesus bears, according to the text, is the name Lord. Kurios. Lord. Which, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word kurios, Lord, is found in this text is the word that is used to translate the word Yahweh, Jehovah. And when the Apostle Paul uses it in this text and in other places in his epistles, he intends for you to understand that Jesus Christ is Jehovah. That's his point in this text. For which the backdrop we have already heard When Christopher Cleveland read to us this morning from Isaiah 45, God himself says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return to me. Every knee shall bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. Jehovah and Isaiah tells us that every knee will bow before Him. Paul says in Philippians 2 that every knee, taking that very passage, applies it to Jesus, and he says that every knee will bow before Him. It would be blasphemy to apply a text that applies to Jehovah. To Jesus were Jesus not Jehovah. But that is the point. He is. Always has been, always will be. And now as God-man, this name is granted him as mediator. And Paul is saying Jesus is Jehovah. And the day is coming when everyone, all creation, will acknowledge him. Now this is high, high stuff. (laughs) This is great, great, deep, rich, wondrous theology about your Savior. You see a twin peak to the passage from Colossians? There could be no more profound language and choice of words to describe the deep, deep, deep humiliation of the Son of God and his exaltation than these. And these are things that should form your life in the way we as Christians think and act. So now let's clench a few applications from these wondrous truths. And one of them is right here in the passage. The Apostle Paul, remember, is addressing a very practical question. People say, People say, dismiss doctrine. Don't do all of this detailed work in the text. Just dismiss doctrine. Just live the Christian life. What is Paul's answer to this? Paul writes about the question of how we should love one another and show humility in the church by giving to us one of the deepest doctrinal passages in the Bible. That's Paul's answer to write the deepest and most profound doctrine by divine inspiration that ever could be written about Jesus in order to answer the question, how are we to relate one to another? Because the deeper your heart is gripped by the truth of Christ's condescension, who He is and what He did, the deeper your heart is gripped by the person and work of Christ, the more Christ-like you will become. And you will begin to have the mind of Christ that will show through in your home, in your marriage, in the way you relate to others, in the world, and especially in the church. So for the minister simply to say be humble and be good to one another would be sheer moralism cut adrift from Christ. Paul knows better. Paul says, here is who Christ is, here is what he did. Now, the obvious thing is, love each other and be humble to one another. So you go on and you're not humble and you're not loving. What do you do? You come back. You get a grip on this. You bring your life to it. You read it again and again, again and again, again and again throughout your life until it becomes more a part of you to understand what Jesus did for you so that you can show grace to your husband or to your wife or to your child or to your parent. ACG Mole says, We need to learn a new grammar. All right? You know, I am, you are, he is, we are, you are, they are. And he says, Well, here's the new grammar for you. First person, he. Second person, you. Third person, I. That's good it's what the text calls us to live second thing it's it's Christmas it's the Christmas season we're thinking in a special focused way on the incarnation of our Lord a number of years ago actually back in the 1960's Bishop John A.T. Robinson provoked controversy with a book that was entitled Honest to God it's a horrible book He criticized the orthodox view that God comes outside of us and that, and I quote him, that through the miracle of the virgin birth he contrived to be born so as to appear one of us. He says like Father Christmas. And he maintained that the magic of Christmas, get this, the magic of Christmas, that's his his language, the magic of Christmas could be maintained by keeping all of this as myth. So this bishop, who should be pastoring God's people, if I may translate his words, you can play the game and just call it myth, and then we can all be happy. But turning Christianity into a myth destroys Christianity and leaves us in our sins. Would leave you hell bound. The Christian message is history or it is nothing. God actually became flesh and dwelt among us. He was born in Bethlehem of Judea. He went to the cross. He rose from the dead. It's all of that or it's nothing. But John A.T. Robinson had the Orthodox view all wrong. God didn't come, the orthodox view is not that God came dressed up as a man, which is Robinson's view of how orthodox Christianity looks at things. The orthodox view, as I have pointed out, is that Jesus is 100% God, and Jesus is 100% man. This is the only time you can take 100% and 100% and come up with 100%. But you do. I was FaceTiming with, uh, with our son, Evan, talking about this very thing. And uh, he said, yeah, Jesus is 100% God, and He is 100% man, so that He can be 100% Savior. And that's it. So think about this, this Christmas, folks. The condescension. Oh, the condescension. How far down He came what he achieved, what he accomplished, and it is no myth. And we know it is no myth. Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the third day. And his word is completely confirmed. But then think of this too. The son who humbled himself has now been exalted and will at the appointed time return. Just as he came, just as he went to a cross, just as he rose from the dead, just as he ascended, just as he poured out the Spirit at Pentecost, he will come again. And all creation will bow before the exalted Christ. Turn to Revelation chapter 5 because I think these words are such a wonderful commentary on Philippians 2, the latter part. When we read in Revelation 5 these magnificent words and have this glorious scene that is painted before us in Revelation 5 9 and following and they sang a new song saying worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped him. What a commentary that is. So you look to the manger and you see his humiliation. You look to the cross and there you see humiliation in deepest colors. And then you look at the empty tomb and his resurrection from the dead. And you look at his ascension and you look at his return. And there you see that this son of God who humbled himself is now exalted and his exaltation will be acknowledged. And so during this Christmas season, when so much around us seems to be awry in this world, and often even in our lives, I want you to lift up your eyes to the day in which Christ will visibly triumph over all opposition. He will come, and he will come in blinding holiness, and all will bow the knee before the one whose work went deep as hell and high as heaven. And then, remember this. His name is Lord. You shall call him Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. But Jesus bears a name. And the name he bears in his exaltation is Lord. Polycarp, one of the church fathers, could have saved his life from martyrdom if he had simply said, Caesar is Lord. Rather than Christ is Lord. But in saving his life, he would have lost his life. Now people, Lord is a test of our loyalty. It is a test of my loyalty, and it is a test of your loyalty. If he is Lord, then he is Lord, period. If he is Lord, then he is Lord over all things, if he is Lord, then he is Lord over all lives. If he is Lord, then he is Lord over my life, my heart, my thoughts, my affections, my desires, my actions, and yours too. It's a test of our loyalty. Do we acknowledge the Lordship of Christ before the world? Do we acknowledge daily in confession, repentance, and faith the Lordship of Christ in our lives. I mentioned last week Henry Martin in passing that great missionary, 19th century missionary to Iran, to Persia. And on one occasion he was so distressed because so many Christians were being persecuted, a Muslim scholar looked at him and tried to give him comfort. He had had some vision. And in that vision he saw Christ reaching up into the fourth heaven or something like that and pulling on Jesus' skirt to give him comfort, saying, no, Jesus, Jesus was pulling on Muhammad's skirt because he was asking Muhammad to give relief from the persecution. And his face showed such distress that the Muslim scholar was perplexed because he didn't understand Christianity as Henry Martin was trying to explain it. And Henry Martin replied, as he thought of Jesus going to Mohammed?" he replied, I could not endure existence if Jesus was not glorified. It would be hell to me if he were to be thus dishonored. Now that strikes me, folks, it really strikes me. For Henry Martin, the thought, Jesus is Lord. He's Lord over Muhammad. He's Lord over all. And for Jesus to be thought of as somehow subordinate would be hell to Henry Martin. I ask you in your lives, is it hell to me that Christ would not be honored in my life? Can you say it would be torture to me if Christ were not honored in this world? Isn't that why we take the gospel into the world? For the glory of God? For the glory of Christ? Isn't that what missions is first about? And that's what it means to live acknowledging Christ's lordship. Charles Lamb, the English poet, when he was with some of his literary friends, made the comment that if Shakespeare came into their midst, they would all stand. But if Jesus came, they would all kneel. This text calls upon us to look to that day in which every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And that means that now, 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 Jesus is Lord Jesus is Lord, and the posture of our souls must be a kneeling posture. Is your soul a kneeling posture this Christmas? Do you see that the Son of God who came down is the exalted Lord who calls upon you to give Him everything to acknowledge His Lordship? Is the posture of your soul a kneeling posture? Oh, come, let us adore Him, Christ Christ. The Lord. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.